Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, and they said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer, to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that is preached to us. Would you pray with me? Father, we do pray that you would help us to make sense of your word here this morning. We call upon you, Holy Spirit, to enlighten our eyes and our minds and our hearts because if you are absent and your work is not among us, these words remain closed to us, hard, impenetrable. But with the giving of the Spirit, as recorded for us in the book of Acts, we see that new life and light are brought to God's Word. It is illuminated for us and not only for our minds and our hearts, but for our hands, for the acts of service that you call us to do and give and show to one another. For us to think about how your church is to be organized and structured. So bless us now, we pray, as we come to your word together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Three simple things we're going to look at this morning here. Some alliteration, if that helps you. The P alliteration. It's there in your your handout as well. The problem, the proposal, and what we're going to call the propagation. So let's look first at verse 1 and talk about the problem here that the church faces. Uh, If you have a family of your own, uh, certainly all of us are from some family, but if you have a family of your own with kids, you may have heard someone say this, or maybe you said this to someone else. Hey, your, your family is just so great. Your family just seems to kind of have everything together. Everybody's so well behaved, and just their manners are so great, and everyone's so friendly. You just really have the perfect family. Admittedly, that's only been said to me a handful of times, and I almost immediately want to respond, please come to my house at 7 a.m. on Monday morning so that you can watch us get kids ready and us get ready for work and see the chaos that ensues in that setting, and then you'll see that it is not quite uh, as perfect maybe as it appears on the outside. Some of you can relate to that as well. I think sometimes as Christians, those of us that are familiar with the Bible and the Scriptures and the church at large, We may think of the early church with a similar mindset. We may hear stories from the book of Acts or read things in the New Testament and say, gosh, if if we could just get back to the perfect church, right, how they were doing it back there, that was the way it should have been done. We got to get back to that because that setting was really how it should be, right? The perfect church was the first like hundred years of the church. That was the golden age and, and that's what we ought to aspire to. Well, I think Acts 6 as well as many other places in Acts and in the New Testament, kind of demystifies that for us. 
Because what we see in Acts 6 is right out of the gate, there is a problem in the church. This is not a perfect church, and any church made up of living, breathing people, which means it's made up of sinners, is not going to be a perfect church. And we are faced here very early, right out of the gate in Acts 6, and really, honestly, in an early part of the church's life. These are the early days of the church. There were problems arising. It becomes apparent to us that there's something happening here in the early church, and it could be potentially divisive for the church. And this problem that is identified here is essentially the the distribution of food. It's the distribution of food. There's more to that, as we're going to see in just a minute. But in essence, that problem boils down to distribution of food. There's an organizational problem happening here in the church. Now, some of the background that's going to be helpful for us to know is that in the early church, the church was made up of many different kinds of folks. In particular, many different uh, women who were widowed. There's a lot of cultural factors that we won't get into for that, but there were many women, some of them particularly, maybe even still somewhat young in their 20s or 30s, whose husbands had died and they perhaps didn't have children. And they were literally, quite literally, all alone. They were brought into the fold, they became followers of Jesus, and the church became their family, and the church became also the place where they actually received real, physical, tangible help. And so the church would gather uh, others who had greater means and the ability and the opportunity to give, would give money, would give food, would give clothing, and these things would have been distributed to those who had need. And so what we see here is that the distribution of food in chapter 6 is beginning to get bogged down a little bit. There's an issue happening that is causing the distribution of food to not go well. And Luke rather mentions here two different groups of people that are directly impacted. He talks about uh, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. The Hellenists, they were the ones who were being essentially kind of overlooked or forgotten about. They were the ones who weren't benefiting at some point from this distribution. Now, the Hellenists, when Luke uses that word, he doesn't really give us a description. But we need to understand that that these would have been Greek-speaking Jews. If you know some of the history of Israel during the the exile, Jews were scattered from essentially Palestine and Jerusalem and Israel all throughout kind of the Mediterranean world, going east and going west. And they would have been uh, brought into uh, and enculturated into the larger Greek-speaking slash Roman culture. And so the Hellenists here are, are Jews. They would have been Jewish by ethnicity and family background, but they would have been part of, again, the larger Greek culture, and certainly they would have been Greek speakers. On the other side, you have what Luke refers to as the Hebrews, and these would have been uh, the Aramaic-speaking Jews, primarily centered in Jerusalem, those who had been there for decades, maybe centuries, tracing family lineage back. And so you had these two different groups in the early church, essentially uh, beginning to have somewhat of a fracture, a division arising potentially between these two groups. The Hellenists, who were Greek-speaking, who were being overlooked in the distribution of this food, and then the Hebrews, who were not suffering quite as much as the Hellenists. The food had to be distributed for the needy, right? That's the issue, that's the problem here. There are people who are needing to be fed But if we dig a little bit deeper, we can understand this. It wasn't just that there were people needing to be fed with physical food. The apostles began to remind us that everyone there needed to be fed with spiritual food. And so actually the distribution of food is the core problem, but it's not just physical food to be distributed, it's the word of God to be distributed. 
And how is that going to happen if we are caught up in this other work of distributing physical food, addressing tangible needs? The question is, who is going to do the feeding? Now, I think that we can say with some certainty that more than likely the apostles probably in the early days of the church had been involved in that distribution of food. They probably know and knew and understood what went into that. More than likely, they had been involved in that at some point. And yet, because as things are often apt to do, things get busy when things grow. When organizations and institutions begin to grow, things can start to fall through the cracks. And you see that here, and Luke sets that up for us, right? When the disciples were increasing in number, and as any institutional organization grows, you've got to be able to recognize how are we going to keep this thing organized? How are we going to keep this thing moving ahead and growing and running smoothly? And as the apostles were doing this work, a whole measure of work, things were beginning to happen and things were falling through the cracks, like people not being able to get the food that they needed. We moved here about six and a half years ago to church plant. And when we moved to Milwaukee, at that time, about six and a half years ago, I had a grand total of zero hours of church planting experience. <laughs> I had no idea what I was really getting into. I knew that there was going to be a lot involved to try to establish a church where there had not been one before. And like any other kind of entrepreneurial endeavor, you begin to wear a lot of different hats. Here at Christ Church Milwaukee, I'm the primary preacher and the senior pastor, but, but I've set up signs and I've helped in the nursery and there's done any number of other things that have helped out to try to make sure things are continuing to move forward and grow and go smoothly. And I think that, again, we should be able to anticipate and understand that this is what was happening in the early church as well. And the apostles had given themselves in so many ways to keep things running smoothly and to keep the organization moving as it should. But what this does teach us, though, is that, again, as organizations grow... If they are to remain healthy, systems have to be put in place so that people, people, real people, don't suffer, don't fall through the cracks. See, systems in a church are necessary, but they all should be built around and structured and designed to bless those that they are set up to serve, to bless the people they are set up to help. Listen here at Christ Church Milwaukee, one of the reasons we're doing this series is because At about six and a half years in, about five plus years of worship, we are in many ways kind of entering into what we might call our own Act 6 moment. It's not a red flag. It's not a flashing warning light. We're not at uh, the end of our rope in any way. But what we are beginning to feel is the crunch of an organization that is growing, a church that is blossoming, a church that is healthy, and yet we're seeing the need for more help. We're seeing the need for real systems. That's why we're talking even this morning about the role of deacon in the church, the necessity of that. All of that points us back to what was happening here, even in the early church, that things needed to be addressed and needed to be answered so that the church could continue to grow and be blessed. The challenge for the apostles, as we see, remains the challenge for for all church leadership. It's not to prevent all problems from happening in the first place. That's an impossibility. My responsibility, the elders' responsibilities here, is not to prevent all problems from happening. The responsibility is to move with wisdom, to move with discretion and discernment and tact and grace and care so that when problems do arise, as they will, they can be addressed in a way that is helpful most for the body. 
So that is the problem that's kind of essentially the background as well as what's happening here in Acts chapter 6. So let's look at what then becomes the proposal, verses 2 through 6. The proposal by the apostles is, is pretty simple and is straightforward. They say, choose seven men from among you to carry out this work. Choose seven men from among you to carry out this work. But the reason or the purpose that they say that is so that the apostles could focus on their calling and their role, which is primarily word and prayer. Primarily word and prayer. Now, a surface reading of this, if we just kind of gloss over it, we, we may be tempted to say, gosh, that's kind of arrogant, don't you think, apostles? I mean, like you're, you're kind of too good to do this work that's beneath you of, of serving tables. What's going on here? Well, I would submit to you that that's not at all what's happening here. That's a false assumption. And we've already said before, more than likely, the apostles were very familiar with doing this kind of work. But one of the ways that the enemy can get into the church and create disunity and a lack of health is by causing others to do things that they're not gifted at and stacking up work and work and work and more and more and more so that it just becomes an overloading burden for those who would be called to specific tasks in the church. All of us have probably had that experience of finding kind of that sweet spot, what we sometimes call our wheelhouse. The apostles had been called by Jesus to do particularly this work. Preach and teach the word. Pray and lead the people of God. So it's not as if this work of serving tables was beneath them. It's that, hey, we need to find the ones that God has equipped to do this work so that they might be empowered to do it as well. We lose it in our English translation here, but the words are actually the same when the apostles speak to this of serving tables and ministering the word. It's the same word that we get the word deacon from. It's the word to minister, to serve. And so the apostles are not saying, hey, this work over here of serving tables, that's beneath us. That's not for us. You guys take care of that. We're going to do the really heavy lifting over here. They say, no, 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 no. The ministry of serving tables is vital, and someone needs to be equipped to do that. The ministry of the word and prayer is vital, and that's what we have been called to do as well. So they set up this proposal of selecting men. The process of this is very important, I think, as well. How these people were chosen and how their roles come about. Well, in essence, the people nominate these men. The apostles then in turn confirm them. And here's what's so cool about this. This is where the poly nerd in me gets excited. This is exactly what we are about to start today. This exact same process where the people of God nominate and put forth men to do certain roles and the leaders of the church confirm that and say yes and we say these are the ones that we think God is raising up to serve and lead in this capacity. And so in many ways, Christ Church Milwaukee here, and certainly not us, but those that carry a Presbyterian form of government as part of their tradition, part of their heritage, 2,000 years of richness behind them. That is what we are essentially entering into here today. And that's the process that the early church began. And certainly it's not an exact correlation for us 2,000 years later, but the groundwork is being laid there. You see it already. Before we move on, we need also to talk about who these people were. These seven and what we know about them. There's been a lot of speculation about why seven 
Why seven men for this role and these tasks that they're given? And, and sometimes I think we can maybe kind of over-spiritualize that. We hear that seven is the perfect number, and so this is the reason these people were chosen, and there's seven for this. I think the answer is actually maybe a little bit more practical. I think more than likely, I can't prove this, but I would guess more than likely, the reason that there's seven is because there were probably seven Greek-speaking house churches in Jerusalem at the time. And so you have one man from each house church being designated to lead the distribution of the food for those churches that were meeting throughout the city. And so you have seven men who are designated to represent these particularly seven Hellenistic churches that were meeting in Jerusalem. And what do we know about them? Well, they're men of good repute. They're full of the Spirit. They're full of wisdom. Now, another passage that we probably could have preached on this morning, or I could have, is 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13, where Paul Right after he talks about the role of elder and the character of the elder, he does the exact same thing for the deacon. So I encourage you to go back and find 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13 to find out about that. But there's something interesting that's going on as well here too with these seven men. Did you notice that all seven of them have Greek names? So all seven of them have Greek names. They probably are representing the seven Hellenistic churches. And what we see from that by way of application is an incredibly important lesson for us in the church. And it's essentially this. Strong leadership will always defer to the needs of the most vulnerable in the body. And so what the apostles do and what others in the church who, who call and nominate and raise up these men, they say, we need people from our own culture, our own background, our own language, people who know us to come and help and serve us in this way. Can you see the potential continued division and fracturing if the church had authoritatively said, hey, we're going to pick these people, you don't have a voice, and they would have assigned Hebraic and Aramaic-speaking leaders to oversee what was happening in the Greek-speaking Hellenistic house churches. And the rift and the tear that that would have created, and yet through compassion and through tenderness and through wisdom, they say, let these Greek-speaking Jewish men be the ones who help oversee those who are struggling with the distribution of food. You see as well, by way of application, that strong leadership in the church is able to delegate. You don't find the apostles micromanaging everything here. That those who are gifted are equipped and they're called out and they're sent out to go do their work and we trust them to do that well because they're equipped with the spirit, they're filled with wisdom, they're men of faith, good things are going to happen. And you see that here in the apostles as well. So that's the proposal. Seven men to help with this distribution of food. And then what is the last point here, the propagation? Look at verse 7. Luke tells us that as a result of this division of labor, of this installing, ordaining men who could aid the church with its specific needs, what happens? Well, the church grows. Isn't that something? More precisely, Luke tells us with some interesting language here that the word of God is what continues to increase. And the number of disciples multiplies greatly in Jerusalem. Even Jewish priests kind of the high-ranking religious and political figures in the city, they convert to the faith. It's a very fascinating account here of what happens. What you see happening then is when this office and this role is filled, 
And the division of labor is something that becomes part of the system of how the church works in a healthy way. Good things happen. Needs are met. Mercy is practiced. People are served. The church is strengthened. But also we're told that the Word of God grows and increases. This is really just Luke's way. He does this several times in Acts. In certain unique places throughout the book, he'll use language like this where the Word increases or the church increases or uh, the influence of the Word grows, that type of language. And that is what he's saying essentially is this, this, that the circle of influence of the church and God's Word and the Gospel continues to expand just as Jesus said it would. How about that? Just as Jesus promised that it would. And so what happens here is that when each part of the body as we looked at three weeks ago from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, when each part of the body is able to work and do what it's properly called and equipped to do, what God has gifted it to do, and those things work in harmony together, good fruit is produced. Lives are changed. People are blessed. People are ministered to. And good things begin to happen in the church. Well, what can we say then by way of conclusion? Well, the early church, as we said, was not perfect. It had problems that arose just like every other church does. But through the leading of the Spirit, through being able to follow what God's leaders had designated, what they suggested, the church was able to come to a solution that was good, that was wise, that was helpful. And we begin to see this early role of servants, of deacons being raised up who will do this work of aiding the body in a a tangible, physical, material way. And it becomes a vital part of the life and health of the church. I want to leave you with a couple of final thoughts on what I think is crucial about the, the role and the office of deacon. Which again, not laid out in great detail here, but again, the raw material is here in Acts 6 for us as we think about who the deacon should be. The office and role of deacon meets the tangible needs of the church and the community. I think that should go without saying, right? That they are gifted and called and equipped and empowered to meet these real tangible needs of the church and the community. And when that happens, it it frees up others in the body to use their gifts as God has equipped them. In particular, it frees up those who we call elders who do the heavy lifting of preaching and teaching and doing the burden of prayer regularly for the people. Again, not that those things are totally separate. Deacons are doing a lot of teaching. Deacons are doing a lot of prayer. Elders are doing a lot of serving as well. But as we see the apostles saying here that there's this particular set of leaders set aside to do this work to preach and to teach and to pray give that shepherding, to give that oversight. Perhaps most importantly, though, I think what you see with the role in the office of deacon is what we said at the very beginning. The deacon is in the church, the the living embodiment, the walking picture of the servant heart of Christ our Lord. After all, it was Jesus himself who said in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's the same language that Luke uses here in Acts 6. To to be a deacon. Jesus came to be a deacon. He came to serve. He came to minister. He came to give everything. Including His own life. 
to be a ransom for us. We see this put into practice in Jesus' life in many different ways, perhaps most memorably, though, in John 13. The washing of the disciples' feet, which, incidentally, Calvin Perrant will be preaching on next Sunday. I'm not going to steal his thunder. But we see there Jesus being the ultimate servant, the ultimate deacon, coming to those that he loves and saying, let me serve you and meet your need. And what we see there as well in John 13 is a foreshadowing of what would take place in John 18 and 19, where Jesus then serves and addresses our greatest need, not our dirty feet, but our dirty souls are at the cross. He lays down his life for us. And it's not just water in a basin that washes off the dirt of the feet, but it's the blood of Jesus himself and the water that flows from his side that washes us spiritually and eternally from all sin. And so you see, even at the cross, Jesus playing the role of deacon, of serving his people in love. And here's our hope. Here's our prayer as a church, right? That we together would be so captivated by this picture of Jesus. We would see this as the beginning of all ways of thinking about service and love in the church. And then we would long for and pray for and help and equip and train those who would be called up to do this very specific and important work in the church as deacons. It's exciting to be a part of that here at Christ Church Milwaukee. We're beginning that process even today. We'll talk more about that in a minute after the service. But this is it. This is where we get to see God at work among us and in us to raise up leaders who will shepherd, who will teach, who will care, who also serve and give and help give aid to us as a body. And as those things happen, the anticipation, the hope, the expectation is that we will grow, is that God will bless us with health. God will bless us with vitality so that Christ Church Milwaukee would be a place where life flows out of. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that you would help us to be a church that recognizes the great necessity of service. But not only the necessity, the great privilege of service. As we see those in need around us, tangible, immediate needs. We step out in love and in faith to address them. So Father, I do pray that you would even now be working in the hearts of these men who would be called to this task, this high, holy calling, that we would be able to identify them and set them apart, to ordain them by the laying on of hands, to install them for this work. So that at the end of the day, our ultimate goal would be the gospel goes forth. The propagation of the good news would be what ultimately comes from the men and the leaders that you give to your church. I pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.